survival books. I picked these things up anywhere I could find them, in a grocery store, in a garage sale, in a flea market, and any kind of library I could steal it from. I would have a largest collection of survival books, and I would read them. I probably learned to read reading books on how to survive in any situation. And if you ever get into that kind of thing, you end up with this cool little bag. And in your little bag, you have a little bag of gear, which makes no sense to most people, but it's this little bag of gear. And you carry it, you take it everywhere. And you have different iterations. And if you know how this goes, you end up with about 600 bags because they all just kind of get tossed in the garage as you find a new bag with new gear and you just start to build these things out. Well, we grew up in Southern California where you have these things called earthquakes. And so you end up trying to figure out how to survive whatever experiences could go along with those circumstances. And you have floods and flash floods and fires and riots and all kinds of things get layered into this. So your knowledge is growing constantly. And then you move around the country and you find other natural disasters from maybe floods that would come in from the ocean and a tsunami that you would kind of dream up in your mind and think, well, what about that situation? And then you come here to Kentucky, Tennessee, and you start becoming aware of tornadoes that come ripping through and all the different trauma that goes along with that. And you constantly add to this knowledge in your mind of how to survive. But it doesn't take you very long to realize that the biggest battles are not necessarily the physical ones and the trauma that you might see in the world. The biggest battles that you learn to survive are the spiritual ones. In fact, Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 says this, that our struggle, our battle, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. He says our biggest battle, the biggest issue that we need to learn to survive it's not the physical one. It's the spiritual one. And it's not just the one outside of you. It's actually worse than something that you can see around you. It's the one inside of us that we have to learn how to survive. The text that's in front of us, 1 Peter 5, is a spiritual survival guide. It's written by somebody who understands how to survive. It's written by somebody who knows failure. Peter's the author of this text. And if you remember, just briefly in your mind, remember back to where we first meet Peter. We see him in the Gospels as Christ sees this scrappy fisherman and grabs him and says, follow me. And Peter says, I'll follow you. And as Christ carries out his public ministry and Peter's along with him, hearing the conversations involved in different dynamics, there's a scene that takes place in Matthew chapter 16. Just listen. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus asked Peter, who do people say that I am? And Peter in verse 22 and 23 of Matthew 16 says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I mean, this incredible statement of affirmation of Christ's deity. Jesus then explains his upcoming crucifixion. And Peter, having just said who Christ is, having heard Christ talk about his upcoming crucifixion, that he's going to die on the cross and then be resurrected, Peter rockets back to Christ saying, God forbid it. This will never happen to you. I mean, here's Peter who on one hand professes the most profound truth of Christ's identity and then just a few moments later says he's going to do everything he can to disrupt the death of Christ. Revealing he doesn't quite understand all that's happening here. 
In the next chapter, Matthew chapter 17, Jesus takes Peter up on the mount where he is transfigured. And this glorious scene where Christ has chosen just a couple disciples to go with him. And as they crest the mount, they get to the top and all that's about to happen starts to take place. And Peter says this, Lord, it's good for us to be here with you. Now just think for a second. This scene, Peter has no idea what he's getting into. But if you can compare it to the time where you take a little kid into meet a very important dignitary or into a very prestigious museum or something of great substance, and the little kid walks in and says, this is awesome, and makes some kind of really loud announcement. And everyone's kind of shocked because where'd that voice come from? And that's what's going on is Jesus brings Peter and Peter says, Lord, it's good for us to be with you. If you wish, I'll make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Again, it's this scene where you've got this like little kid. And if you're a little kid, I'm not picking on you. I was there too. Okay, so I'm with you. But it's like the little kid who just won't stop talking. Do you have one of those in your life? We have three teenage girls and sometimes we have three teenage girls that won't stop talking. And they're just going, ratcheting their mouths and you're like, Stop. And here's what happens. Peter is talking about how good it is for him to be there with Jesus in this scene. And while he is still speaking, the bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's God the father telling Peter to shut up. Stop talking and listen to Jesus. Kind of a sobering moment where Peter starts to realize, I need to be very quiet right now. When God the Father interrupts your filibuster, it's time to stop. And here's Peter, the audacious, bombastic, self-absorbed young man that he is, impulsive, Bold, courageous, but often clumsy, continuing to follow Christ. It's in John chapter 18 that we meet him again, where Judas leads a vigilante crowd to where Jesus is going to be arrested. And who is it that jumps up in front of Jesus, draws out a sword, and takes a swipe at the first person he possibly can? It's Peter. That's Peter doing exactly what he said he was going to do not too long before. He said, I'm going to do everything I can to stop them from executing you, Jesus. And he pulled out a sword and went straight at him. And again, Jesus is here rebuking Peter. Such courage, such audacity, such boldness. But watch how quickly that evaporates. Listen to what happens in Luke chapter 22. There's an argument that broke out in the upper room right before Christ is, uh, goes to the garden and then is taken away. There's an argument that breaks out amongst the disciples over who's the greatest, who's the best, who's going to get to sit at the right hand of the Father. And Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Peter hears these words from Christ. Jesus says, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's an amazing statement. We all have trouble in this life, but I don't know how many of us have had our name 
uttered from the lips of Satan to God saying, I want to sift that person like wheat. And Jesus says, though I've prayed for you, that you may not fail, but when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter's response to hearing this is, Lord, with you I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. I mean, here he is. He makes that statement again. If I'm going to follow you anywhere, Christ. And after the... But Jesus says this, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And after the third time, something incredible happens. In fact, Luke chapter 22, just mark this down. Go look at it later on. Luke chapter 22, verse 61, says that after the third time when Peter denied Christ, the rooster crowed, and the text says, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Did you ever realize that there were, when Peter made that third denial, he was within a direct line of sight of Jesus? Across the room, he makes that comment, to the people in front of him and denies Christ, says, I'm not with him. And Jesus turns and looks, and eye contact is made across the courtyard. And the text says, Peter remembered what Jesus had said. And his heart's broken, his heart's crushed, and he runs out and weeps bitterly. That courage that was with him in the crowd, that courage that was with him when Christ was right next to him, evaporated even to the point where he denied Christ. What we're reading today in 1 Peter are the words of a young man who has grown up. We're reading of the testimony of somebody who understands life's trials, who has been through the battle, not just external, but the battle within, the battle against his own pride. And what we hear here in this text are the tools that Peter gives us for how to survive those same type of battles. So let's look at what we see in 1 Peter chapter 5. It starts off in verse 5 where Peter gives an instruction just in general to the younger men. He says, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders. It's telling him to put yourself under. There are spiritual leaders of the church and he says, get yourself in line with them. Don't thwart them. Don't run around them. Don't want to run away from them. Submit yourself. Subject yourself. Put yourself under them. But then he pivots this to all of us and he says, and all of you, and this is where we get our first key, all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The first key to surviving any trial is understanding that God exalts the humble. Who does God lift up? It's the humble. He lifts up the humble. This is so encouraging, so insightful, because he tells us to clothe ourselves, to wrap ourselves in humility. It's not a costume we put on when we want to portray ourselves to be something we're not. It's a uniform that we put on that reveals what's in our heart. He says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Two people groups that catch God's attention, the proud and the humble. And he says, to the humble, God gives grace. But to the proud, he thwarts, he resists. But then look at verse 6. He says, therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. There's the use of the word humble that goes with 
confessing sin, with recognizing our wickedness, with understanding that God is holy and we are not, and that we are broken in our sin and we need forgiveness. And if there's any righteousness in us, it's only what Christ has put there. And that humbles us because we know how unworthy we are. As we just sound, we're unworthy of anything that God gives us. And that understanding of humility needs to be in all of our minds. But there's a different use of the word that Peter is driving towards here in verse 6. He says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. That use of the word tells us that there's an action we can take that positions us to survive any trial. There's a step we can take that positions us to endure whatever comes along. And it's this. It's saying, allow yourself to be humiliated. Embrace your humiliations. That's a whole different understanding than what most of our minds think of. Peter's saying, do not resist God's efforts to impart humility to us. Do not resist his plan, but in fact, yield to it. Stop fighting him. Embrace the plan that God has, including our humiliation. It's one thing to be humbled. It's another thing to be humiliated. Have you had that experience? It's humbling when something happens to you, a season of loss, and you realize that you don't have anything left besides your own person and everything else is stripped away. But it's humiliating when it goes beyond that. There's a level of embarrassment before the world. There's a level of inexplainable grief before the world when even the world looks at you with shame. And you have nothing in yourself of any worth. You see, what Peter's driving towards is to get at that root of bitter or arrogance in us, get at that root of pride that wants to be humble but not willing to be humiliated. And what Peter says is embrace your humiliations. You say, how do we understand that? Well, what Peter's alluding to here is exactly what we see in Jesus Christ. You see, it was Christ who not only humbled himself, but then was humiliated. He said in John chapter 6, verse 38, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Part of Christ's humiliation was to set aside his own will and open himself up, yield himself to the Father's plan and say, I'll do what you want me to do. It's the lesson from Philippians chapter 2. Leave your finger in 1 Peter chapter 5 and just turn over a few pages to your Bible to Philippians chapter 2 and just look at this for a moment with your own eyes. Philippians chapter 2, Paul is writing about humility and he says in verse 2 or verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. That's not just an action. That's an internal thought. That's an internal mindset of willingness to set aside my will, my desires, and be humble and serve someone else. But he says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He humbled himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death 
on a cross. You see what's happening here? Is that's not just humbling himself and taking on the role that he had as man. That's humiliating. It went beyond being humbled. It's now humiliating. To be stripped of everything, to be sent to the cross, to be executed having been falsely accused, scorned by the world, even his closest friends deserting him, and dying as a common thief, a criminal. But you know what we see in that? Is we see that's God's plan. That was God's plan. But our mindset sometimes does not allow for us to include the thought that God's plan might be our total humiliation before an unbelieving world. We want to be left with some dignity. We want to be left with some anchor point where we have a title, we have a possession, we have something that anchors us. And yet God may be saying, no, my work with you in this moment, in this season of time, is complete humiliation. Look back at First Peter chapter 5. He says, this is the one that God will ultimately exalt. Because, he says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. There is a proper time where God will turn those humiliations into exaltation. There is a proper time where God will lift up what he's broken down, where he will restore what he's torn apart. And we see that back in Philippians chapter 2, where the next verse, after describing all this humiliation that Christ went through, verse 9 of Philippians 2 says, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are on, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's exalted high. And we worship him and we praise him because though he was humiliated on earth and before the world, it's God who then says, but I will exalt you and I will lift him up. And he has. And just as God the Father fulfilled the promise he made to God the Son, and we see that, the same promise is made to us in First Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he will exalt you at the proper time. You say, exalt, what, what happens? It means that God takes away, take, God takes the very thing that's snubbed by this world and gives it honor. That God takes the very thing that's scorned by this world and gives it his love. You say, how do we do that? How do we move towards that kind of humility in embracing our humiliations? The answer is simple. It's to stare at Jesus. It's to f- keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Our twins are just about to turn 16. And if any of you parents have traversed this 16-year-old line, I need your survival guide playbook after this, okay? Because somewhere my girls are reading into the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, that there is a law that mandates that they get their driver's license shortly after turning 16. I don't know. I'm a little worried about this. But one thing I do know in driving in contemplating how we're going to teach these kids to drive is I know that whatever you stare at is what you're going to hit, right? I mean, you've, if you've driven for any length of time, you know that you were staring at something too long and you moved the car toward it and you realize that's a bad decision and you correct. Well, just like in driving, just like in life, that whatever you stare at, you're going to hit. You stare at Christ. 
you fix your eyes on Christ. You keep your gaze locked on Him because as He endured the humiliations of life and was exalted by the Father, we will endure the humiliations of life as we draw those things to us and see what the world can't see. That these are the things that God is using to refine us. These are the things that God's using to humble us. These are the things that God is using to demonstrate His grace in ways that we could never otherwise see. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It said, I've been crucified with Christ. And God is using these things that are humiliating as a tool to draw me closer to him and to refine me for his purpose. Knowing that means that I can forgive because I've been forgiven. I can show grace because I've been shown grace. I can show love because I've been shown love. I can give mercy and extend peace to others because I have been given God's peace and have been, have been given his mercy. When we stare at Jesus, I see myself accurately in the light of his word. And that puts everything else in perspective. Mark down Luke chapter 14 verse 11 where Christ says, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but he who humbles himself will be exalted. There's a direct correlation between pride and humility. And Peter tells us, if you're going to survive the challenges of life, if you're going to endure the challenges of life, it's going to begin by recognizing that God exalts the humble. Second comes to us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, where it says God comforts the humble. Not only does God exalt the humble, but then God comforts the humble. In verse 7, it says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now, I love this word cast. Cast here is the idea of heaving something. No one in this world has ever perfected the art of throwing something and at the same time retaining it. You cannot throw a baseball and hold the baseball at the same time. You either throw it and it's released and it goes somewhere or you hold it. But there's no other option. It's either in your hands or out of your hands. And the word cast here has that exact mental picture that you have to throw or heave or release all of these things that cause anxiety. And if you hold on to it, you're going to hold on to all the anxiety with it. Psalm 55 verse 22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. You can't half-heartedly cast anything. Throwing it on Christ means I'm not holding it anymore. The verse says, cast all your anxiety. The word anxiety is the word for things that divide us, things that tear us up, things that cause confusion, things that separate our thoughts, things that cause the, the turmoil of life things that confuse us, concern us, consume us. And what he says is the humble person who has learned to trust God will cast their anxieties on him. But look at the back half of this verse. And if you underline your Bible, this is a short phrase to underline. It says, because he cares for you. You know what's so wonderful about that? Is that we have his supernatural affection and attention at all times, regardless of what I do in the first half of the verse. That even when I fail to cast all my anxieties on him, he still cares for me. 
I mean, what if it was an if-then equation? Cast all your anxieties on him, and then he will care for you. There's no hope in that. But what Peter's doing is reminding us that we have a Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who's already died for us. He's already demonstrated supernatural love for us. And Peter's saying, you have no reason not to cast your cares on him. No reason not to place your anxiety on him. No reason not to put all the things that concern you and consume you on him. It's not conditioned upon my response. It's his love for us that keeps it this way. Romans 8, the end, talks about all the things that could try to pry his love away from us, and it's not going to happen. It's not that he only cares when I cast my anxiety on him. It's that he cares for me all the time. And I have no reason not to cast my anxieties on him. Matthew chapter 6, at the end of the chapter, says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Right? Is that not true? There's no Costco for grace, is there? I can't go get a pallet load of grace in the back of the truck and bring home and stick it in the pantry in case I need an extra scoop, right? I only get enough grace for just the one day. A friend told me a long time ago that God gives you no grace for your imagination. You know, that's really true. I can imagine all kinds of what-ifs and if-onlys, and there's no grace for the imagination, but there's grace for the reality of life. And I got to live in that reality day by day. And what Peter assures us with as an older man, now looking back at the long arc of God's faithfulness, looking back at all the trials of life, looking back at all the persecution, all the failure, and he says, you cast your anxieties on him because he actually cares for you. That goes beyond just a mere knowledge of you or an affirmation of your worth or sharing your emotions or a listening ear. This is supernatural watch care from someone who knows your name, knows your thoughts, knows your trajectory in life, knows all of your desires, every single component of your entire circumstances. He's intimately acquainted with all of it, and he still cares for you. Our anxiety is met with his compassion. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's help there. And yet it's our pride that stops us from asking. It's our pride that stops us from believing that he actually cares. There's our pride that stops us from pouring out our hearts to him, thinking, well, it's just, it's not going to matter anyway, or no real change is going to happen today. Maybe the test is just that we'll sit down, get on our knees, and say, God, I need you to hear me out. I need you to help me see this from a different perspective. I need to release the tension that I've been bottling up and incubating and ask you to give me grace with the circumstances of the people that I can't understand. I love the words of Psalm 103, verse 13 and 14. It says, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame, and he's mindful that we are but dust. 
I don't know about you, but there are times when I go to God in prayer and say, God, I know that your word says I'm a vapor waiting to evaporate and dust that can be blown away. I know that's what your word says I am, and I know that's what I am, but I need you to help this vapor a little bit. I need guidance. I need wisdom. I need clarity of thought. I need instruction. I need you to clear an obstacle out of the way. I need you to give grace. As Psalm 103, verse 13 says, as a father is compassionate on his children. And I know some of you don't have a father who ever expressed that compassion. So those words don't relate to any human relationship that you can lean on. But as a father who has supernatural love for you to the point where he put his own son to death for you, there is compassion there available from him who loves you. It's God who exalts the humble. Second, it's God who comforts the humble. Third, we find in verse 8, it's God who guards the humble. God who guards the humble. Verse 8 says, Be of sober spirit. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is such vivid vocabulary. I mean, this is a whole movie in one verse. The, the wordplay and the definitions here are just mind-boggling. He talks about an adversary. That's your opponent in a lawsuit. That's the prosecutor who's accusing you, attacking you. And the word devil is the identity. It's slander. Peter calls out this person by both what they do and who they are. It's the devil, the slander, the character assassin who's discoloring, who's undermining, tearing you down as your adversary. It's who he is and it's what he does. Satan trolls about looking for someone to slander. The point here is don't be an easy target. Don't live your life in a way that makes you an easy target for his slander. Look back at 1 Peter chapter 2. Just turn back a page or two in your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 12 says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter's saying, hey, the world's watching. Their eyes are always around. Live your life in a way that keeps you above reproach. Look forward, one chapter, chapter 3, verse 16. It says, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. This issue of slander is out there. The world is looking for any excuse to use your failures as a chance to criticize you even more and assassinate your character. And what he says in verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 5 is be of sober spirit. Pay attention. Be alert. Keep your eyes up. Know what's going on around you. Have a sense of bearing for where Satan's going to attack. And really, it's two ways. It's protecting the vulnerable and my vulnerabilities. It's looking at my vulnerabilities and saying, where's the attack likely to happen in my own heart? Where are the areas of temptation that I battle with? Where are the things that I get discouraged by where I'm prone to think less of God and more of my circumstances? Where I'm prone to find relief or comfort in other things rather than in His Word? He's saying, don't have a false sense of security. Don't lie to yourself. Don't ignore the dangers. Be awake. Be watchful. Knowing that your enemy is on the move. 
First Peter chapter 1, verse 13 says, Therefore, prepare your mind for actions. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Keep my eyes fixed there, focused there, and I'm guarded by God when I am. He guards the humble. He protects us from this enemy that's prowling about like a roaring lion. I don't know if you've ever had the situation where you've been stalked before. Not by a human, but by an animal. Maybe by a human too, I don't know. Maybe some of you have. But in the mountains of Southern California, we used every chance we possibly could to ditch school and get on the four-wheeler and go for rides. And that's what we did. As often as I could keep school from getting in the way of my education, I did. And we would just ride through the mountains. And I remember one day we stopped, my brother and I, and I looked through this tumbleweed. And on the other side of the tumbleweed were two eyes of a mountain lion. And that thing had been just pouncing along following us and realized, this is a really bad deal because he's still there. Eventually we did get rid of him. But to be stalked is a frightening experience because this thing has no instinct but to kill. It has no instinct but to attack. It feels no remorse. It has one goal and it's food and you look like a great meal. And that's what Satan does. And the warning here, the caution here, but also the comfort is to know your vulnerabilities and to guard against any area where the attack might be. But it's also not just knowing my own vulnerabilities, but I think there's another caution here too. And that's look out for the vulnerable. That's look out for the vulnerable. God makes you spiritually strong so you can look for those who are weak and help them. That's 1 Timothy 5, 14, where it says, Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Be patient with everyone. That you use your strength to guard those who don't have the strength to protect themselves. Use your strength to come alongside the weak who are unable to take the step they need to take to live and you, and you come alongside and pour into them and help them. As God guards us, we guard others. Be sober spirit, be on the alert. But look at how verse 9 then continues the same thought. He says, But resist him, being firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You say, how do you guard yourself? How do you be of sober spirit and resist this roaring lion? He gives you the answer. He says, be firm in your faith. Be firm in your faith. Know how to answer his attacks with the words of Christ. Know how to use the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God in that spiritual battle. It's Ephesians six ten and following. It says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you might be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You put on the full armor of God. We pick up every piece of it and we put it on ourselves and we put it into practice so that when Satan attacks, he's met with the antidote of God's word, which repulses him. James 4, 7, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But there's comfort here. He says, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brother who are in the world. You know, there's comfort in knowing you're not alone. You go through a trial of life and there's comfort when someone comes alongside you and says, I've experienced the same thing. I know the emotions you're going through and it's okay. That's what happens here. Peter says, you're not alone. 
Paul would say this way in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. He says you're not alone. The battles you're facing, the threats you're fighting, the challenges that you're enduring are common to man. These are normal things. But we have an answer. He says these things are normal in the world, but the words of the writer of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says that we run this race with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What he's saying is these battles, they're the common things we face. And others have survived, others have endured, and you will too. Not only does God, in his kindness and his mercy, exalt the humble, he guards the humble, he comforts the humble, and then last in verse 10 and 11, he sustains the humble. He sustains the humble. He says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's a time element that's brought into this passage here. He says that he's going to sustain us, but look, he says, after you've suffered for a little while. Yeah, that's a phrase we use sometimes. And again, as parents, we might answer questions about when will we get there? You ever get that question on the road trip? When do we get there? And what's your answer? In a little while. And what do you mean by that? Like four more days. You know, like, when's, when is so-and-so going to come over to the house? In a little while. And we use that phrase, and it, it really has no definition. We mean by saying that some block of time. And you know what? God does the same thing here. You say, how long do I have to endure this suffering? And God says, just a little while. How long do I have to deal with this cancer? Just a little while. How long do I have to deal with the difficulties in this marriage? Just a little while. How long do I have to deal with the trauma at my workplace? Just a little while. How long do I have to deal with the scars of the past? God says, just a little while. You see what's happening in that statement? The brevity of life is so short in comparison to the eternity we have on the other side of death. How long do we have to endure the griefs, the trials, the challenges of life? Just a little while. Because what's on the other side of this is eternity with Christ, is eternity with our Creator, is eternity in a place of absolute perfection. How long did Christ endure the cross and despise the shame? Just a little while. How long can we endure for his sake? As Peter says, just a little while. This affliction affliction gives us the ability to comfort others. The things we experience in our life give us the ability, as Peter does, to turn and pour that comfort into others who need that comfort. And while we on our part 
are working to resist the devil and humble ourselves and cast our anxieties on him and all the things that he's told us to do, there's something that's stated here in verse 10 I want to draw your attention to of what God is doing in us. While we're doing our part, God is doing something else. It says right here that he himself who has called you his eternal glory, he himself will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To perfect is to put all the pieces in the right order. It's like having a puzzle that's finally finished. You know that? That's a very unique sense of satisfaction, isn't it? When you finally get the last piece of the puzzle put in there and it's finished, you step back and you say, ah. And then some kid comes through and just crumples it up. You're like, that was just fast. But that's what God does. He puts everything in order in our life. That's what happens under the pressure of trials. He organizes our character. The second word there, confirm, that's to stabilize or enforce, to make something impregnable. Nothing can penetrate it. Make it solid. To strengthen is to galvanize it, to anchor it so that it's not tossed amongst the storms of life. And then the word to establish is the idea of becoming part of the foundation that something else can then be built on. You see, what Peter just did is he taught us a lesson that we can build a life on that someone else down the road can learn from and build a life on. And it repeats and repeats and repeats. What we have here are the seasoned thoughts of a man of God who experienced the trials and challenges of life and has survived them. And what he gives to us is the same understanding that in God's grace and in his kindness, we can be exalted when we are humble. We can be comforted when we're filled with anxiety. We can be guarded when we're under the attack of the enemy. And we know that he will sustain us when we walk in humility before him. Pray with me. Our Father, we know that your word teaches us these lessons. And we know that men and women throughout your word, live them. We thank you for even showing us their failures. We need to see that, Lord. We, we know our own weakness, and sometimes we look at your word and think, maybe they didn't struggle like we do. But when we see Peter's failures, we're reminded that he's a man like we are. And yet we see your comfort, and we see your grace, we see your kindness that you give to him. I pray today for those here that we would understand your mercy we would understand your love for us in a way that our anxieties can be cast on you, knowing that you care for us, that you guard us, sustain us, and in your time you will exalt us. So we praise you, Lord. We thank you for the mercy that you have shown us even in this day thus far. In your name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.